Welcome to the podcast, Dorkfest. We have no sponsorships, no guest interviews, no distribution contracts. Only four dorks and a Zoom connection. Punishment means no Dorkfest points and no chance of victory. Dork well and you will be treated well. Dork badly, and you will end up like Dan, being mercilessly mocked for liking Rise of Skywalker. And speaking of someone who has grown so old and so inflexible that he has outlived his usefulness, I'll start the introductions on this episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. Dan, how are you? Well, I was doing well until that that shot in the introduction, and. I can only say this, if, if, if I were human, I believe my <laughs> response would be, go to hell. Good that is, of course, if I were human. Yeah, good thing for me that you're not. Uh, n- next in our aliens graveyard is an insubordinate, unprincipled, career-minded opportunist. It's Jordan. I mean, on occasion, I've been known to disobey orders maybe offering up several answers for the warm-up question instead of just providing the one that's expected. But I just have so many good ideas. Also, Dan, that, that, that shot, how many shots were there? Five? Six? I'm still not sure we're totally sure. I'm, I'm still not sure. It's the same number as uh, torpedoes from the Enterprise and Excelsior that properly landed on the cloaked bird of prey. Whatever the answer was, I got it right. Last but not least, a raving lunatic who is so desperate to exonerate the captain that he'll say anything. Hello, Gabe. And you would be right, Mr. Josh. Uh, All I have are opinions which happen to fit my facts. Thanks so much, dorks. Uh, Tonight on Dorkfest, the podcast, we are going to right an ancient wrong on our podcast by introducing a new series of episodes, which we are calling The Commissioner's Collection. In the first year of this podcast, we struggled in finding adequate time and space to give our absolute favorite movies the attention and analysis that they deserve. We talked about Goldfinger, but really only the vehicles and the gadgets. We analyzed Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but that had to be sandwiched in between Temple of Doom and Crystal Skull. We've touched on the hunt for Red October, but that hasn't really fit squarely into one of the broader topics we've discussed so far either. These movies require the most sophisticated scrutiny, the deepest dissection, and the most joyous of our dorky puns. So, for the Commissioner's Collection set of shows, which will be sprinkled throughout our normal recordings, we're going to focus exclusively on one movie. These movies will be the cream of our dorky crop, the pick of our dorky litter, the movies that hold the dearest of places in our dorky hearts. The debut episode of the Commissioner's Collection will be taking us back to where it all started for us here on Dorkfest, the podcast. You may remember back in the infancy of this podcast, an apocryphal tale of a battle of dorky wits whose champion, me, through a complicated system of nomination and elimination, got to choose the movie, which we were all going to watch that night. 
The selection that night was the intriguing, incandescent, and irresistible Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country. Released in 1991, this Cold War allegory was the first Star Trek movie that I saw in theaters, and at all of seven and a half years old, all of that subtext went soaring over my head like a shockwave from Praxis. After that first viewing, all I knew was that Klingons were the most badass villains in the universe, Kirk and company were the ultimate heroes in the galaxy, and that a Viridium patch was a handy plot device for keeping track of people. While those were enough to cement it as one of my favorite movies, with age and education, it became crystal clear just how timely and sage this movie was. It's impossible for me to adequately summarize everything that we love about this movie, so I'm going to open hailing frequencies to my fellow dorks and spend the entirety of this podcast talking about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. We'll have the same one, two, and three-point question format. First, I'll be asking the dorks about who their favorite characters are from Star Trek VI. Next, we'll break down our favorite scenes from the movie. And lastly, we'll decide whether or not Star Trek VI merits inclusion in the Commissioner's Collection. No surprise, I think we'll all be agreeing that this one very much does. Normally, regulations specify thrusters only while in space dock, but I'm going to ask the dorks to accelerate to one-quarter impulse power for our warm-up question. It's one that we've asked before on DorkFest, the podcast. I would like to know what your favorite musical moment is from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and Jordan, I'm coming to you first. So, not surprisingly, before I actually rewatched Star Trek VI, uh, there were a lot of different musical moments that were rolling around in my head. No, 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 no. You're leading off the warm-up question, so you only get one, Binky. I'm only you going to get... You steal all the rest of these picks. I'm not stealing all of them. I'm about to give you my one if you'd let me actually finish. Can I go? I'm moderating this podcast with an iron fist. Proceed. As I was going to say, all of the different options aside, once I plugged in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, it was clear to me that the best musical moment is the overture. It's the entire beginning overture to the movie. It immediately pulls you in. It has an excellent sprinkling of all the different melodies that you'll hear throughout the rest of the film. And the way that it ties in with the explosion of Praxis at the very end of the overture and the very beginning of the movie is just a really, really, it's a really, really nice combination between the two. So again, I know it is my tradition to offer up a bunch of different examples, but that just doesn't apply here because simply my favorite and the best musical moment is that overture that just pulls you in throughout the beginning. Gabe, can you possibly top it? Well, I'm going to sure have to try. And I think to do so, after a little bit of surgery done on a torpedo, I'm going to rock it to the end of the movie. And I'm going to take the sort of hero suite theme, the, the sort of softer version of the, of the march that Jordan's talking about that opens the film when they're riding off into the sunset, as it were. A second start of the ride and straight on till morning. It's a very different theme for a Star Trek movie. It's not what we would come to know is the Star Trek The Next Generation theme, even though that originates far earlier in the series. Um, it's not an homage to the original series. It's something completely new from composer Cliff Eidelman, and um, I think it's more than stood the test of time. I think it's probably one of the great pieces of Star Trek music. It's a, it's a gorgeous arrangement. 
So I'm going to go with the Escape from Rurapente uh, portion, but for one specific reason. I was li- actually listening to this soundtrack a lot over the last week and a half, two weeks, while shoveling the mountains of snow that have fallen in the Northeast over the last couple weeks. And when this comes on and it is just white all around, especially like early in the morning as the sun is coming up, it's a pretty neat image. Uh, and, and, you know, with all the snow around you and the bitter cold, it's a, it was a really cool feeling when I heard that one. So I'll go with Escape from Rurapente. Dan, what have you got? All great selections. Those were... My one, two, and three choices on my little Star Trek VI soundtrack depth chart. That's okay. We do deep cuts uh, here on my side of things. And I am going to say, which I I don't think this answer is cheating, uh, I'm going to say the sign-off at the very end, which I think is different than what Gabe was alluding to, because Gabe is referring to the second star to the right, and when Kirk very eloquently and beautifully sends the original series to the next generation with the where no man, where no one has gone before line. And then the movie ends and then we get the sign off and it's, it's the literal sign off. We get the signatures of all the main cast members, the main bridge crew. And this is the last time we're going to see these seven people together. I remember that being a very emotional moment in the movie theater, and I am man enough to admit that at 39 years young, I still find that to be a very emotional moment on the movie screen because it's it's the end. It's the end of the beginning. And yes, there's so much more Star Trek that will come after that, but this is where it began with these seven individuals. It's a moment to kind of step back and recognize their achievements and their accomplishments and the music so beautifully portrays that send off. I love that sign off too. And that's when Cliff Eidelman gives the big flourish that, that he was maybe sort of head faking in that, that he wasn't going to do in Gabe's section. And then you finally, then you get it at the sign off. And, and, and at no point is it better than when Bill Shatner is scrawling across. He, he gets a little, he gets a little warm up. He gets a little like, almost drum roll right before, right before his. Isn't there even a little, a slight pause? A pause, yeah. Before Bill Shatner's name gets up there. Because he does, there is a little homage both there and actually in the, and you're right, Dan, between the two scenes we were talking about, there's a, there's a little bit of like a horn section that is, that is the, the Star Trek theme as we know it. And, And there's a little bit of that too in the Shatner one, but it does really set that one off. Yeah, there, there's the pause, they're through everybody else. And then there it goes, William Shatner. And then here's the rest of the credits. Here's everybody else. I mean, everybody's leaving the theater. <laughs> right, right. Well, the, 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 of course, the credits start with like all of these same names again. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah we, we really like all these guys. Uh, thank you, dorks. The game is officially afoot. So it's time for our one point question. Who are our favorite characters from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country? I'll start us off because there's a short answer, and that short answer is pretty much everybody. On balance, there's not a, a false character in this movie. Um, everybody's playing, firstly, at the top of their game, so we can say that. Secondly, I think the best thing about our main characters, and I think we should probably open up, uh, put them on the table here first, um, is that this movie embraces the fact that everybody's at the end of their Star Trek career here, um, both in Starfleet and you know, playing in Starfleet. 
the movie doesn't shy away. And uh, obviously Nick Myers, director Nick Myers, other film, Wrath of Khan, more than wink nudged at this concept as well. But here in six, like you said, it's the last one and everybody is showing their age more or less. They are veterans. This is an experienced person's movie. Um, and that sets the tone really for, for everything. The whole notion of the undiscovered country, the future is the question mark for everybody in this film and for very different reasons. And in honor of the late Christopher Plummer, I'd just like to start with him as General Chang. I know I just lauded the, uh, the Starfleet folks, but I think we've got to give a specific shout out to Ricardo Montalban is great, but a true debate is to be had about who is the greatest villain in Star Trek. And a solid argument exists, more than solid exists, for Christopher Plummer as General Chang. Yeah, I think Chang and Gorkin, it's arguable that these are the two coolest Klingons in all of Star Trek. Like you might get an argument from like some of the more ardent Worf fans, but you know, Worf has considerable time on a screen, on a TV screen to look like a doofus. These two guys are just killing it at a hundred percent through this entire movie. Chang is so evil and so devious and you know, we're not, totally used to really smart Klingons. Like we're used to evil Klingons and strong Klingons. There aren't a ton that that you would associate with this conspiracy and like arguing in a courtroom setting. And Chang fits perfectly into that. And Gabe, you said it correctly. Christopher Plummer is absolutely perfect for this role and not someone who I would have anticipated would make a great Klingon, but he is tremendous. He's incredibly memorable, and part of that is due to, and I just want to get this foot in the door before Jordan does, is um, the Shakespeare of it all. I, Nick Meyer was quoted, I'm paraphrasing him somewhat, as saying that he isn't always, as much as this is a guy that clearly loves his classics uh, and homages them, again, in Wrath of Khan, the previous film, and, and here it's a lot of Shakespeare, but he said, uh, I normally don't you know, hold with doing too much of that sort of thing, but it's all in the execution, effectively. And all of a sudden, when you have Christopher Plummer saying it, it starts to sound pretty good. So he started to you know, put in a little more but the thing is too i mean it draws all this all the shakespeare stuff that he's drawing from makes sense too you know you have not you have not truly experienced shakespeare until you have heard it in the original klingon and boy hearing it from one of our original klingons i suppose it's fair to say uh in chang is is never fails to be anything short of delightful entertainment from the first uh, to the final to be or not to be um everything in between is and there's some gold in, in them there are hills as well but yeah it's Christopher Plummer is fantastic. And, you know, just a little bit of interesting, interesting backstory in terms of Christopher Plummer and this role. Um, for, from some of the stuff that I read, Nicholas Meyer wrote this role specifically with him in mind. Um, and actually, and, I'm, and I feel bad, I'm blanking on the, I just reread this article right before the show and I'm blanking on the casting director's name. But Meyer actually said, like, if you don't get him, I'm not I'm not doing it. I'm not doing this movie if you can't get him. And it took some convincing, presumably not surprisingly, but, you know, just kind of interesting that, you know, this was very much a role that was designed for him. There was also um, an interesting, he, he said in, in another interview that one of his regrets was that David Warner got the line that he wanted, which was that line that you were just talking about, Gabe. Um, you know, Christopher Plummer wished that he had the line about reading Shakespeare, reading Hamlet in the original Klingon, but that's of course a David Warner line with, with Admiral Gorkin. And I think not only do you see the, the smart and sort of devious Klingon in general Chang, 
But Gorkin's also a very different type of Klingon that we see because he's very much, his, his mission is peace-driven. His mission is, is in part saving his society, saving his culture, saving his people, but also trying to mend relationships that have been fraught for decades, if not centuries. And that's a different type of Klingon that we've seen and a different type of Klingon that we've seen Kirk interact with. And that's obviously a huge part of kind of the narrative arc that Kirk has to go through in terms of this whole film. So I think, you know, General Chang, I think, you know, just to echo what Josh and Gabe both said, Christopher Plummer, just absolutely fantastic. Maybe not better than Cobb. I mean, might be just 1A and 1B right there. I think part of what has to do with the success of those two characters, Gorkon and Chang, also has to be attributed to the costume design, especially for General Chang. We've never seen, at least that I can recall before this, a bald Klingon or a Klingon with an eye patch. I mean, it's very unique costume design for those two guys. With three bolts drilled into his head, so fastening the eye right. patch on. Wow, right. that was that crazy. And I think that, I mean, from a costume design standpoint, that tells you like, okay, this guy has been through the trials, right? This guy has seen a few things, he's experienced a few things. And so that is in part why he feels the way that he does about this potential alliance between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. And I think we get some excellent juxtaposition between you've got Chang, who's the warrior Klingon, and I'm anti this alliance, and then you've got Gorkon, and he's seeking out peace, and he is trying to see the brighter future. And you've got their counterpoints on the Federation side of things, because Spock is, he's the olive branch. You know, we've reached out, we're going to try and save the Klingon Empire here. And Kirk is the Chang equivalent. He's the, I don't trust them. I've never trusted Klingons and I never will. I, I think this is a bad idea. I can't believe you vouched for me. I don't understand why we're doing this. Let them die. So you've got that neat interplay where it's like the Klingons are viewed in this movies as the quote unquote bad guys, right? They're the villains, but it's not the Klingon race that's the villain. It's Chang and those like him who are the villains. And in saying that, Kirk and those like him are the villains in this movie. And it's those who can set aside their prejudices and those who can set aside their differences, they become the heroes in this movie. Chang was unable to do that, so he is the villain. Kirk is able to see the error of his ways and broaden his horizons and set aside those prejudices. And so in doing that, he becomes a hero. But for large parts of this movie, strangely enough, it seems like Kirk is kind of like a villain. Dan, that's such a great point, and it's one that, as I've watched this movie more and more as time's gone on, has become more and more one of my favorite parts of this movie, and I don't think it works without it. Um, Kirk has a legitimate reason for being, even let's say, uncomfortable with Klingons or uncomfortable with the notion of reconciling with them. And, you know, you, so since we feel where he's coming from, it means something to see Kirk, especially in that scene with Spock in their cabin at the end, where they admit that, yeah, maybe they are so old, they've outlived their usefulness. Um, and Kirk says that he could just not get past the death of his son, and now it's cost him all this, and he has the chance for redemption, and he takes it at the end. People can be very frightened of change. He makes that leap, as you say, Dan, where, yeah, Chang is a villain because he could not. I, I think they're incredibly well-matched. In the first scene, when the Klingon contingent arrives from Kronos 1, from the first line 
the plumber has, I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. I mean, he is, you know, instantly he has sized Kirk up. He knows who he is meeting. There is instantly a sense of history. I mean, it, it is, we've talked about this already as kind of a Cold War allegory movie. And it is very much in those sort of like Cold War spy novels of, you know, everybody is aware who the other is on the other side, even if from afar, you know, people know Bond or Smirsh or Spectre, or whoever it's going to be, you know, they, they know these folks by reputation. And, you know, it's sort of borne out as it goes on, as you understand the moves Chang has been making. And, and yeah, the, their different strategies in the climax of the film are, are great. You know, back off, back off. What's she doing? They're each trying to figure each other out. The game's afoot. Target that new ship, target that explosion and fire. And then, you know, everything, it, it's a phenomenal ending bit there. But it is, it does all revolve around the two guys still getting the measure of each other. And Gorkin is right in the middle of that. And he has one of the best lines, one of the lines of the movie. If there is to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. That's huge. The allegory aside, it's it's the whole, you know, it's one of the sole lines of this movie, I think. Um, along with Kirk's, people can be very frightened of change at the end. And that's, you know, Kirk pulling to that side by the end. You know, Gorkin is a great pivot point. And yeah, just a tremendous, soulful I think heartfelt performance by um, by David Warner uh, in one of his many Star Trek appearances. Uh, of note, too, I thought it was interesting in, in my own research. Gorkin's makeup was supposed to evoke both Captain Ahab and Abraham Lincoln to the notion of that you couldn't quite tell, because we couldn't be as an audience, you couldn't quite tell what his intentions were. There was something inherently familiar and friendly about it. You know, you you wanted him to be telling the truth, but there was, you know, some resistance there. And I think David Warner also hits that line tremendously. He is not He's not a softy. He's looking for peace when he comes in, but you never get the impression that the man, but he's not soft. On a quick, less serious note, I just want to give a quick shout out to his cane slash walking stick slash. Looks like a di a dinosaur or a bone or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. I think Kirk is so great in this movie. I in our last Star Trek movie podcast, I, I was I was Mr. Kirk, and I'm afraid it's going to continue. He is just, he's at odds with everyone in this movie. You know, you've done a great job, Gabe, talking about him against Chang. It's Kirk versus Spock for the first 20 minutes of this movie, yeah. which is something that we're not used to seeing, and is, is really uncomfortable. And we've seen these two guys go back and forth and be, you know, jocular and mocking of each other at times, but they are both coming at this Klingon problem from completely different directions. And they're both very open about how they think they are right and the other is completely wrong. What Kirk is thinking is that like, this is going to get us all killed, Spock. What are you doing? And Spock is coming at it from the completely opposite perspective is that this could be the greatest thing that any of us can possibly do with our lives. What are you thinking, Jim? You know, eventually Kirk, you know, cedes to his duty, but he lets it be known throughout, you know, the, the rest of that mission that he thinks this is a bad idea. You know, let's get this over with. Uh, I hope you're happy. He, you know, quips to Spock after he invites the Klingons over for dinner. Kirk versus Spock is also a really interesting antagonistic relationship in the opening. Well, and I think what's so beautiful then is that you've got Kirk at one end of the spectrum, you've got Spock at the other end of the spectrum. And to your point, Josh, this is something that we have seen in the past, maybe not to this 
important degree necessarily, but we've seen this before in episodes and in movies where those two guys have differing opinions. And who's the guy that's always in the middle? And that's Bones. And so it's wonderful how it works out then that Kirk, who is sort of the villain, one of the villains in this movie, the guy that clearly we as the audience look at and say, okay, you need to change your, your line of thinking here. Like we understand where you're coming from, but you need to kind of clue in because this is the future and this is where we're headed and this is what's going to be best for everyone. So isn't it then wonderful that the movie creates this scenario and this dynamic where Kirk gets to spend all this time with Bones and this really important time with Bones where presumably there's no reason that either one of these guys should believe once they are convicted in a Klingon court and sent to Rurapente known throughout the galaxy as the alien's graveyard, right? The judge even says with no chance of reprieve or parole. So they're, they're, right, they're there for life. That's it. So they get this quality time and Kirk has a chance to think about it, but not just by himself. He has a chance to think about it with his friend who has always been kind of his sounding board, that guy that he goes to when he, I mean, heck, we saw it in uh, the Corbomite maneuver for crying out loud at the very beginning of, you know, how this whole thing started, Kirk and Bones, and Bones is there to kind of walk him through and talk him through this stuff. And that's when he sort of comes to grips with the decision and the change that he needs to make. And it's not that Bones forces it, right? McCoy doesn't ever say, Jim, you need to do this. This is the future. He just kind of helps him realize what's going on so that Kirk can come to that decision on his own, which for all of us, that is how and when the most meaningful decisions are made is when we come to them ourselves. But we need those people in our lives to kind of help us get there sometimes. And that's what Bones has always been to Jim Kirk and what he continues to be. And that's why that works so well for the two of them to end up in a presumably dire, fatal situation. That's when Kirk realizes it. Okay, now we pivot. Now we're into the climax of the movie, Save the Universe. Here we go. Bones also tremendous hype man. You got him, Jim. You got him where you want him. I was wearing his knees. Dan, in reference to, you know, that, almost therapeutic interaction that um that bones is providing for kirk you know i i I think of one specific line during one of their many conversations when kirk says well we something along the lines of well we felt bad but somebody else felt a heck of a lot worse and and i do feel like that line kind of speaks to sort of the transformation that he's going through throughout this film that he's starting to recognize that Perhaps his feelings weren't all that dissimilar from other Klingons, but that to move in a direction that he would ultimately want to move in, he needs to make certain changes and he needs to change his mind about certain things. He needs to, you know, even if he is afraid of that change, he still needs to go forward with it. And I think that that's something that's really open about the interaction between the two of them. And, and, and Josh, I, I want to use that word because that was a word that you actually used to describe the interaction between Spock and Kirk earlier on, the, the kind of openness in terms of how they're both talking about their feelings. And I think that that's a really important component because I think that openness also makes everyone's opinions 
and everyone sort of stands at least to a certain degree maybe not relatable but understandable like i think as an audience we can really see where everyone is coming from and because of that then we can't necessarily discount the way that kirk feels because well the klingons they they did kill his son and we can't necessarily discount the way that Chang feels because we've seen so many other, maybe not seen Klingons exactly like him, but we've seen other Klingons in that same sort of ethos. We can't necessarily discount what Spock's idea, because Spock's idea is a very ethical and moral idea. We, we really get a, an avenue into each of their mindsets. And, and because of that, I, I think that we're kind of wrestling with all of these different thoughts and opinions just as we see the characters wrestling with them. And doesn't Spock even say at the beginning of that conference with the Starfleet brass at the behest of the Vulcan ambassador, which we have to assume is Sarek. So basically Spock starts to do this or at least go down this road to please his dad. And we know that Spock has had daddy issues for as long as we've known Spock as a character, basically, right? So you've got Kirk, who's coming at it on the one family side of, I don't trust these people, they murdered my son. And you got Spock coming from the other side, I'm trying to please my dad and carry on the legacy of the Federation. So there's, I mean, these are impulses and impetuses that are are kind of deep-rooted in wanting to hold up the family name, basically. It is a really unique opportunity that this movie has because we know these characters so well. Um, Jordan, you talked about how open it, it, everybody is and how we, we get uh, a good understanding of everybody's point of view. I, I wonder how much of that is because we know these guys so well, but you know, that, that's just more reason why people need to go back and watch all these Star Trek episodes and movies. It's great stuff. And the stuff that comes later is even better when you have that complete uh, understanding. The rest of the Enterprise crew boasts some great characters. You've got your, you know, your stalwart Scotty or a Chekhov. Captain Sulu is in a, is in a more prominent role. But I think Valeris deserves some analysis because I think she's a really fascinating character, clearly meant to remind us of Lieutenant Savick and then her villainy at, at the end, I, I think is a real solid twist for a Star Trek movie. This screenplay um, and Kim Cattrall both play Valera so well. It, initially, the character was conceived of as being Savick, uh, but Gene Roddenberry balked at that, even though Nick Meyer correctly pointed out that he had been the one that created Savick in the first place. So, the, but yeah, they ended up not, you know, and also I believe Kim Cattrall did not want to be the, at that point, third actress to have played Savick. Um, and honestly, I think that Valeris works better as her own character anyway, as, as powerful as it would have been to see somebody like Savick turn. I mean, you talk about somebody who we would have kind of related to, that one would have been hard to take. Um, and I think it's kind of hard enough to take and hard enough to watch. And, and the way they play her, that first scene, what, what struck me sort of in miniature first is uh, after the Klingons, after the dinner, they beam back to Kronos 1 and they've, uh, you know, Burke and Samno have their little, uh, or no, it's after they've beamed aboard. And before they go to dinner, Burke and Samno have their own little, you know, racist diatribe against Klingons. 
And Valerius interrupts them. You men have work. Yes, ma'am. And they go off. And there's that lingering close-up on her. And it's very much a kind of like, uh, it, it's kind of, it's misdirection, I think, at its best. You know, the way they've set it up so far, you feel like she's having a moral conflict over that scene, not a moral conflict over what we don't know is yet to come. Later on, I was struck too by, after the trial, Enterprises, you know, Spock is sort of leading the charge. And that's something Leonard Nimoy does so beautifully. He is in such control of Spock, but also this, his portion of this movie. Uh, Spock has his own, Leonard Nimoy gets his own Columbo subplot, basically, in this movie, is how I'm thinking about it now. And it's, it's just fantastic. But he's leading everybody through what's going on. And it's, he turns to Valeris to give the answer every single time because he trusts her. And for her, you have to think the calculus is, well, okay, he's clearly figured this out. So how much do I reveal? Not nothing until maybe I'm certain he knows everything. Or does he know I know? I mean, she has to, she plays it so cool this whole time. And, and yeah, I think the more you think about it, the more gets revealed. Yeah, it all, props all around. I think she does a, a tremendous job. Gabe, just to comment on a couple of the scenes that you brought up. First off, the, the second one that you were just talking about. Uh, it's funny thinking about that scene after we just finished up a Columbo podcast because I couldn't help but feel like that was a little bit of a Columbo moment where Spock is Columbo and Valeris is the killer. And, 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 it, and it's the... I got you. Now I just need to figure out how I got you. And it's interesting because I think you interpret it a little bit differently. I think you see that as her not necessarily showing her hand entirely at that point, but maybe just showing part of her hand. And I do wonder if that point, does Spock have a sense that maybe he doesn't know everything? And I guess he definitely doesn't know everything because he learns everything during what is definitely an uncomfortable, forcible mind, mind meld. He learns that all later. Um, but I do, do just think that's an interesting sort of, you know, franchise connection. Um, and then the earlier scene that you were talking about after the crew of Kronos One beams on, you know, that scene, when you're watching it the first time, is just so innocuous, right? It, it, it's just a superior officer ordering other officers to go do something and you don't really think much of it and then, and it's just you know one of those it, it becomes obvious on rewatch for obvious reasons but it's just kind of interesting how that sort of innocuous scene is included in there but but it also then just shows the the kind of depth and and the deliberateness of of the the narrative well, I, I think that scene in particular, as Gabe pointed out, is to throw the audience off the scent, right? Because, you know, these guys are having this this overtly racist exchange. And here's Valeris who steps in and says, um, gentlemen, you're on duty. So before I report you, let's let's get back to work here. But I think she presents such a tremendous juxtaposition for Spock's character in the end. Because this movie begins with Spock as the good guy. We're the olive branch. Spock is this broad-minded, forward-thinking ambassador, effectively, who's going to merge the Federation and the Klingon Empire together. And it's Kirk who's got to catch up. Like, come on, Jim, get with the 24th century here already. Spock's way ahead of you. But then in the end, we find out that Part of the mastermind of this whole evil scheme, Valeris on the Federation side, Spock's the one who sponsored her admission to Starfleet Academy. So now all of a sudden, we, as Kirk is transitioning, he's kind of come around, okay, now I'm, now I'm forward thinking, now I'm with you, Spock. Now we come to learn that, wait a minute, Spock isn't necessarily 
you know, all sunshine and roses either because he saw the good in this person and all of a sudden now she's not so good. And I absolutely, I, I, we're going to talk about scenes later on, but I think this is tied into the character. That frustration for Spock is so beautifully manifested in that scene, court reporter to sick bay to take statements from Yeoman Burke and Sam though. And he slaps the disruptor, the phaser out of her hand. And we don't get to see emotional outbursts from Spock very often, but that's about as good as they get. And then we get the mind meld and, and that's uncomfortable. But I think that scene is salvaged because of Leonard Nimoy's performance, because you can see the discomfort on his face as it becomes uncomfortable for Valeris. Spock is an officer. He knows he's got a job to do. He knows he kind of screwed one up in supporting Valeris because now it's come back to bid him. He's going to go so far as to get what he needs. But when he realizes, wait a minute, we're about to cross a line here. You can see it in Leonard Nimoy's performance. He backs off. And at his delivery, she does not know. She, yeah. she doesn't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I, I can't go any deeper. She genuinely doesn't know. I just, I'm not sure that I ever kind of piece that together about how Kurt goes forward at a moment that we realize some of Spock's vulnerability because Spock is kind of so holier than thou at the beginning of the movie. Uh, you know, we're going to do all these great stuff. And we're going to merge these worlds. and We're going to save the Klingon empire. And I don't understand Jim, why you can't get on board with this. But all along, he was sponsoring someone through no fault of Spock's necessarily, but that his judgment and character wasn't necessarily as spot on as maybe we were led to believe. Dan, I think you're so right in in just pointing out that the performance of Leonard Nimoy really salvages that. Because I, I think what I hear you kind of saying in there is that the context and perhaps the content of the scene is uncomfortable for us right now, but you still see you still see the humanity. Between, between the two different characters. And that is something that I think you're right does, does kind of salvage that scene. Can I also just say that I love Sulu in this movie? I, I, like, I don't know what happened between Star Trek V and Star Trek VI that they decided we're going to make Sulu a captain. But when the movie starts and it's Sulu in the captain's chair, I mean, it's a thing of beauty. And he... He owns. He is, he is delighted. Oh my word! I mean, I'm not sure there's ever been a guy happier to end up in a captain's chair than Hikaru Sulu because that tea looks beautiful. That chair looks cozy. I mean, he is truly loving life. But then, when you know what hits the fan, he proves to be a very capable commanding officer. Not that we would expect anything less of of Sulu based on his performance on the Enterprise. Uh, you know, George Takai, I think he just plays that character perfectly. I love that then he gets to come back and assist later on. He, he's got some great, very insightful little moments. Christian Slater, odd Christian Slater sighting in Star Trek VI. He, he clearly is like in on the Valeris ploy here, or at least I think that's what we're led to believe. And you have a hearing problem, mister? Like, you know, I'm, I know I was the helmsman of, you know, 1701 for however many years, but I'm in command now and I'm going to show you why. Like he's, he's clearly pretty sharp and right. He's, he's on the horn with Kirk and I'm sorry, captain, you know, your transmission started to break up. Bless you. Sue. Like he, he gets what's going on here. 
and, and then at the end, of course, the Excelsior shows up to, to help out in the final battle. But I, I just thought a delightful little performance from Sulu. And, and I did enjoy that, you know, we, we've talked, you know, ad nauseum in, in this podcast and others about that, you know, that sort of holy trinity of Jim, Spock, and McCoy. But the fact that the other characters get something to do always makes me happy. Um, so to be able to see Sulu in the captain's chair, for her to actually like get useful lines of dialogue, Chekhov mostly provides some of the comic relief, but like at least he's there, at least he gets to do some stuff. I, I just, I mean, I enjoy those three guys. They are the meat and potatoes, the heart of, of the original series. But when the supporting cast gets to do some stuff, that always makes me happy. And one, just to jump in there, one one other crew member that you didn't mention, uh, Dan, with Scotty. What one scene that I love with him is is that initial scene right after they've left space dock, and he's just staring up at the work core, just grinning ear from ear. And I love the reaction of the people around them that are that are staring at him like, you 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 okay there? You okay there, buddy? I think there's something going on with the editing in that scene. Like, I, there's no reason why we need to see Scotty at that moment. Um, and the people around him are in awe of what he has seemingly just accomplished, which is accelerating to one half impulse power. I think that was, you know, filmed with something a little more precarious going on and Scotty did some miracle worker stuff and then they just plugged it in there to make it look good. Because right after that, there's another shot of Valeris where she's clearly standing up as they're leaving the space dock. And it's like, well, why are you standing up now? You know, you were just doing one half impulse, one quarter impulse power, you know, sit in your chair and pr press the red button and go. Uh, you know, the, the parking brake isn't on, that this isn't Trek 09, you know, we're fine. Uh, so I, I, I think that is part of the explanation of that. But, you know, Scotty is, Scotty gets some good one-on-one -on -one time with Spock to, to, to help solve the, the, the Columbo mystery in, in the middle of this thing. So I think that's a nice thing that Scotty gets to do. Everybody really does get to play their part in this. I mean, I hate to extend the metaphor, but I mean, you have to focus on every Avenger. You know, everybody gets, everybody contributes in some way. Chekhov helps, you know, find the blood on the transporter pad. Uhura's the one that figures out how to target change ship. I mean, everybody's sort of in on, I know Spock's sort of conducting the bridge in that scene we'll talk about later, but that's a great thing too, in separating and getting all the great moments that you get with Kirk and McCoy. That means that everybody else is going to get a chance to shine on these parallel story tracks, you know? And and I just want to say, too, that, yeah, obviously, George Takei as Hikaru Sulu is great in this movie, and that's why I made him my captain in our crew draft, basically because of Star Trek VI. He, he is absolutely capable. Yeah, he gets, the movie starts with a bang with Praxis, and they're right in it. And his handling of that situation, Turner into the Wave, is just such a cool, quick little way out of that situation. And yeah, he is Johnny on the spot for the rest of the movie. He shows up even at the end. He shows up not only for the torpedo fight, but he shows up to Cartwright. Just a minute. Saving the day. That's what Hikaru Sulu is. That's the generation we're missing in between the original series and the next generation. Well, and then he has the, the, the line that everybody in the audience is thinking, good to see you in action one more time, Captain Kirk. And he's great. I mean, yeah, George Takei really does make the most of every second of his screen time here. Dan, I think you said he just looks like he's having a great time, and I completely agree. I always appreciated how Sulu made all of his 
important staff a line up on the bridge for that for delivering that line you know we don't we don't just want like the standard crew like we need the full full bridge packed into the view screen to send off kirk and company that definitely felt intentional that was a, a nice note actually on the christian slater front the reason he is in that movie is because his mother uh was the casting director for this film uh mary joe slater uh, who was a casting director in her own you know she had been one for uh, some time but she was the one who basically i think said hey come be in this thing for a couple extra, you know, suspiciously long frames. <laughs> so, so his mom got him the job. Uh, basically. But I always thought that was kind of a, a neat thing too. You know I mean? There's, th- is there any reason for Christian Slater to be there other than he presumably likes Star Trek? I'm fine with that. Yeah, there, there's a whole slew of people in this movie. I mean, we talked about, you know, Christopher Plummer and we talked about David Warner and you talk about Christian Slater and, and Kim Cattrall and we got, Grace Lee Whitney reprising Janice Rand. I know she's not credited as such, but come on, we all we all know. Well, and the character we haven't spoken of yet, um, Iman as Marcia, who is a great 20-minute heel turn of a character in this movie, kind of shows up out of nowhere and yet is not at all out of place. I, I again you talk about somebody who makes the most out of the out of her screen time. I, I always thought she was, if I may, she was shifting. In, in the movie, and appropriately so. Oh, no. <laughs> and you would know, Gabo. I would know from Shifty. I don't know from Shape Shifty, but she does that pretty well, too. Takes you know, a lot of effort. On a similar note, am I, am I the only, am I the last one that realized that the Federation president is also red from that 70s show? I think you might be. Yes, you are yeah, the last one. Yeah, you're. Yeah, you're the last. I, I, um, I, I adore that '70s show. I always enjoy seeing Red Foreman as the president of the United Federation of Planets. He doesn't necessarily get a whole lot to do, but boy, howdy, he, it's a hell of a makeup job. It's a great napkin throw. Have you guys ever looked out the windows of his office in that scene? Do you know where they are? It's ten forward. <laughs> No, it is. It is. But have you actually looked out? Like, have you seen what is Isn't, supposed to be out the windows? I think it's. I read it's, it's supposed to be Paris. Yeah, Eiffel yeah. Towers in the background. I had never seen that until this very watch of Star Trek Six. I had never yeah. seen that his office is apparently in Paris. That's just neat. I, I'm with you, Gabe. I only I only noticed the Eiffel Tower on this most recent viewing. That right there is why you can never watch Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country too many times. Two layers every time because it is a phenomenal film in its own right well we'll always have paris we'll always have dork fest and we'll always have tremendous analysis by by you three dorks great job on on the characters if the point fits i must award it to dan for correctly naming jim kirk as the villain of the first half of this movie uh, astute observation uh, you know I, one that i admit i haven't hadn't quite in my head put those two words kirk and villain together even now it just it just feels wrong to say that jim kirk is a is a villain my, my all-time favorite captain but you're absolutely right dan great job the point is yours thank you very much i will happily take it you know how i open this podcast by saying that if I were human, I would have told you to, you know, go to a certain place. The reality is everybody's human. Now we expand our analysis to include scenes. All scenes? For two points. 
what are our favorite scenes from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country? Now, just because I don't, I want to make sure that I'm not breaking any rules here. Am I, am I allowed to talk about as many scenes as I want, or do I have to pick only one? You have to pick one half of one scene. <laughs> one half <laughs> of one scene. Yes. If I, in that case, I am going to take one half of the dinner scene. I just need to think about yeah. which half. Which side I, of the I, table I think, do you take? Yeah. <laughs> Whether I'm picking one half of this, uh, one half of the scene, or or the whole scene, it, it, with the dinner scene, one of the things that I that I really like about it, and, and I think the dialogue really gets this point across, is that the the interaction between the characters, the scene itself, is appropriately awkward. You have, you know, two races here that are not typically used to being this close to me as Kirk says like never been this close and you know he says that before they're actually on board the ship but then when they're on on board the ship you definitely haven't been that close and you have you know like the awkwardness in terms of the the conversation you know you have some more humorous examples when Uhura asks the one guy about what his thoughts are on Shakespeare while he's you know stuff in his face but then you also have like Spock speaking over Kirk then you have Kirk contradicting Spock and then you have the one Klingon talking about the annihilation of our culture and then McCoy's like that's not true and he's like it isn't and and you have this you know back and forth that it's not quite confrontational but it's getting there and it's definitely awkward and it's definitely uncomfortable and then that's all sort of encapsulated by that line that I believe Gabe referenced earlier, but I might be wrong. And if I am wrong, the moderator will definitely point it out later where he says, you know, our generation is going to have the hardest one living in this, in this changed universe. And that, and that dinner is a really nice encapsulation of that idea that, you know, basically they're sitting down to a meal. They're chugging quite a bit of Romulan ale, trying to make this work. And it ends up being, very, very awkward for most of them. Jordan, it's a great scene, and it's something that we don't get to see a lot in Star Trek. And and I think part of what makes it great is that you say they're all trying to make it work. I think what makes it great is they're all trying to make it work for their specific purposes. Chang is clearly trying to needle Kirk. Kirk is clearly sticking it to Spock every moment he gets Gorkin is clearly trying to like hold his contingent of Klingons together with his bare hands. Spock trying desperately to, you know, stay above it all. Uhura trying desperately to have it not devolve into a food fight. And and of course, McCoy is not going to be told by any uh, brigadier general, you know, what, you know, underhanded stuff he's up to. I, I love that Brigadier Curla. That Klingon is great too. Everybody is trying to do something a little bit different at this dinner scene. And you're right, Jay, it is really awkward and a really, really cool scene. I'm correct. The, that, that Brigadier Curla, he's also the first Klingon that you see in this. Or no, you see the guy that's getting burned burn up on, um, Technically, you see him first, and then after yeah, that, yeah. Good, good save. The moderator surely would have dinged you for that. I, I appreciate you abiding. This scene, I think, is a good example, too, of what we were talking about with this film embracing the character's age. This is 
this is kind of what like adults do. They're sitting at a table trying to make it work, as you say, Jordan. I mean, in a Star Wars film, blasters would have been drawn halfway through that film. Somebody would have ended up blasted or probably missing an arm. But no, here they're trying to talk it out. And yeah, at the end, well, I can see we have a long way to go. Man, Gabe. Gabe. Great. <laughs> Boy, no, must be no whiskey in the, in the glass tonight. <laughs> All right, well, you guys have talked about a nice, poignant, meaningful, contemplative scene as it relates to the dinner sequence. I'm going to the end and I'm going to the splody splody and the final battle, the battle for peace between the Enterprise, the Excelsior, and the Klingon bird of prey, which can fire when cloaked, much to Scotty's chagrin there. Bird of prey cannot fire when she's cloaked. (laughs) That's it. There it is. Uh, But, I mean, in all seriousness, this is an unbelievable battle sequence. I mean, the Enterprise just takes a pounding for about the first five minutes of this scene. She is lost. The bird of prey is just having her way with Jim Kirk's ship. Then, you know, Josh, you mentioned it, or Gable, maybe it was you, the little back off, back off, the kind of gamesmanship there. Maybe there starts to be some strategy at play. We get the Excelsior that that shows up, and, and now it's the game's afoot. And Sue even says, all right, we've given her something else to shoot at, basically. We've just given it another target while Jim Kirk concocts whatever scheme is going to save the galaxy here. But by this point in the early 90s, they've gotten pretty darn good at these space battle sequences they're not quite as lumbered as maybe they were in say star trek 2 and star trek 3 there can be there's a little more dynamic interplay between the ships the models are of course great but you know the the special effects are, are really good the one in particular that always i mean just still strikes me to this day is that torpedo that comes up under the saucer of the Enterprise, and we get that great shot of it just breaching the hull underneath the Enterprise, going straight through. I mean, the carnage that is taking place on the Enterprise and then subsequently the Excelsior is, how in the world are these guys going to get out of this thing? And then surgery on a torpedo. And the next thing you know, Chang is staring down the barrel of his own demise and it's target that explosion and fire. I think the only reason that Spock asked McCoy to help was so that he could use that surgery line. I'm genuinely not sure why it's McCoy that goes down to help with the torpedo, but it, it, it does give Bones some great lines. You know, what I'm whispering to myself half the time Dan's talking during this podcast, I'd give good money if he'd shut up. Uh, I mean, he, I mean, Bones is a little out of place there, but those two, they get the job done. And I always looked at that scene as like the, the, the two of them teaming up together. That is that is a decision in service of the franchise, in service of the relationship that those two characters have built over the course of that franchise. It's that scene where, like, obviously dorks like us, we're going to be invested no matter what. But many other dorks like us are going to look at that scene and are going to say, yeah, doesn't make a whole lot of sense that McCoy is there with Spock, but I don't care because... I'll listen to the two of them go back and forth until I'm blue in the face. Well, I remember as a kid 
thinking like, oh, cool. It's so cool that like McCoy knows how to do that. You know, I bet maybe even Scotty can do some basic first aid or something like, you know, it's a ship. Everybody works together. I do think this is kind of an all hands on deck situation. It's a phenomenal scene, this action scene. It's, it's legendary in our dorky circles and for good measure. Um, Dan, that explosion you mentioned, uh, is a, isn't it also preceded by that really cool shot of like a distant enterprise? So you get to see the torpedo like speed up to it from below, which is just so rare an angle for Star Trek. And you know how they accomplished that effect you're talking about with the uh, that torpedo going through? They flipped the model upside down, blew it up, just so gravity would take over in the dispersion effect. So you flip it right side up, all of a sudden, space explosion. Film trickery right there. The, the back and forth, and this scene is so tightly edited. And, and again, Cliff Eidelman's score does tremendous work this whole time. It starts off so softly, just building with like a low bassoon or something like that and a little bit of percussion. And yeah, by the end, it's as frantic as any battle of the Mutara, that the Mutara Nebula could offer. It's the Christopher Plummer asides that really make this. Cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war. You know, the, the reason that McCoy is begging him to shut up are also, unfortunately, just so dorkily beloved. Tickle us, do we not laugh? Prick us, do we not bleed? Wrong us, shall we not revenge? He's all over the Shakespeare map here. He's in, he's in like three different shows. But again, as Nicholas Meyer said, it's Christopher Plummer. It just works. And that line from McCoy that you referenced, Gabe, I, I feel like is actually narratively important because it's well known amongst these dorks that I am a huge fan of Billy Shakespeare, still trying to make him cool with the school kids, perhaps not with much success. Um, but, I, but I've always felt in that scene that s- several of the quotes make sense. They work in there. And then it gets to a certain point where it's like, all right, dude, we get it. You really like Shakespeare and you like quoting Shakespeare. And that's right around the time that we get that line from McCoy. And it's like, yeah, no, I'd, I'd give real money for that too, because these lines are starting to not make a whole lot of sense in context. Yeah, I mean, he's just trying to needle Kirk. You know, I mean, this is, this is in the vein of Khan, you know, I'll leave you buried alive at the center of a dead planet. Like, this is just him, you know, twisting the knife verbally. And it is so finally triumphant when they launch that torpedo and the whole battle turns and it's an instant shift. Chang stands upright out of his chair watching that torpedo track and you can hear that little beeping in the distance. And then, yeah, after that, and I think it is, I'm not even going to try and quote the number. I'll do it off screen sometime, offline, for fear of being wrong. If it's what I think that you're trying to reference, it's Act 3 scene. No, I'm still talking about the number of torpedoes that are... (laughs) So, okay, so... I was going to say, we need to fill in some blanks here. (laughs) In this very first Dorkfest, it was a tiebreaker situation between Dan and myself, and Gabe came up with the question of how many torpedoes hit the Klingon bird of prey in this battle. And Dan and I each give our guesses and it was you know whoever's closest wins and we looked to Gabe for an answer and he said I I don't know I assumed one of you would know and so then we put the movie on to to verify to re-verify range to target as it were and you have to piece it together through like how many torpedoes are fired versus how many actually make impact and my number ended up being closer but it, it, it is this um 
you know, perhaps unanswerable question on Dorkfest, the podcast, exactly how many torpedoes make impact with Chang's bird of prey. Fortunately, it was just enough. Well, and, and in Gabe's defense, so this very first Dorkfest trivia contest, it was all impromptu. So everybody came up with their own questions, just, you know, sitting on the couch. Yeah, just, you know, just one afternoon. Right, yeah. with, with a cold beverage. Um, and so then when it ended in a tie, we needed an impromptu tiebreaker. And for Gabe to come up with that just off the top of his noggin was phenomenal. And so that, you know, so in, in deference to Gabe, you know, the listening audience may be wondering how in the world do you ask a question you don't know the answer to. That may be why. Uh, but then, yeah, I mean, the the post-question analysis yeah, video, it, it, video, video analysis. Right, right. We didn't have to go to the war room in Toronto, but, uh, you know, <laughs> they, they had to figure something out. Getting back on track just ever so slightly, I'll introduce – uh, another scene that that is among my favorites and it's the trial this is th again one that that we don't often see in star trek kirk and bones in real jeopardy you know there's the original series episode court martial but there's this sort of like the stakes in that are like well we know this is a tv show like we know that kirk isn't just going to go away you know they're going to figure something out this is the last movie. I mean, all of the actors, all of the production made no bones about this is the last one of these. So could Kirk die at the hands of the, of the Klingons? Sure, crazier things have happened in the finales of movie franchises. There are real stakes in this scene. Chang is unbelievable i mean this is quickly becoming a christopher Plummer appreciation podcast and he absolutely deserves it in this scene especially i feel like is where he's really flexing pretty hard yeah he um a rare thing happens here where um in this meeting of great canadian actors christopher Plummer actually outhands william shatner and it works so well you've got a far a much more dialed back kirk who is very cautious and diplomatically so about this whole scene and, you know, Bones is there trying to do his best, but he's, I hate to say, maybe a little outmatched in this particular uh, oh, scenario. What is your medical status? Aside from a touch of arthritis, I'd say pretty good. All right. Bones. Yeah, a, a singular wit indeed. I, I've never liked that joke because it makes me think that, like, Bones doesn't fully appreciate just how close he is to having no medical status whatsoever. <laughs> an excellent point but i always kind of appreciated that just as it was you know mccoy trying to be kind of his, his own self you know it would be it, 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 it's totally way. the thing he would say if he was in like a court martial to you know a starfleet you know lawyer talking to him he, he gets a pretty rude awakening with the way that lands in the klingon courtroom and Plummer builds tremendously he he starts off kind of quiet um you've got that neat uh this movie also has, a, I think, a couple of Hunt for Red October echoes as I look at it this time. But one of them is sort of in the way they handle language. They have in sort of very real time that translation. Yeah, they do the Judgment at Nuremberg trick yeah. where yeah. he starts talking in Klingons and then they show the person translating and then they go back to Plummer but speaking in English now. Yeah, there you go. He builds that phenomenal, uh, don't wait for the translation, answer me now. And he is just fully unhinged. I mean, he's just yelling at Kirk at this point. That line, too, just a weird, interesting political reference, and, you know, continuing the whole Cold War allegory in this film. But 
Uh, and yeah, and this whole time, Shatner is very reserved in the face of that. And those words were spoken by me, you know, very sober, very, and you know, it, it, it's a very interesting contrast. We don't often see, we don't see Chang like that again. Well, I guess once with that cry havoc line, but um, this is a, as animated as Chang gets. And it is an interesting scene for all the just dynamics that happen here. Is that Adelaide Stevenson? Yeah, he's, uh, it's during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's confronting a, um, a Soviet diplomat about the existence of said problematic, well, maybe not the ones in Cuba, but um, yeah, it's Adlai Stevenson in like 62. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, not only that direct line, but I think also just the, the general setting of that trial oh. is, is very much, you know, based in that sort of, that, that, that whole setting is, is very Cold War-esque as well. Not only just in how dark it feels, but also how isolated it feels as well. And, and that's something that, you know, we've talked about it plenty of times. That's something that Star Trek does so well of, you know, placing itself within an historical context and commenting on the history during the course of their films or during the course of their stories. In the commentary, which I listen to because I'm a dork, and I'm certain you guys have probably given it a lent at an ear or two as well, uh, Nick Meyer says exactly that. Uh, he talks about, the director Nicholas Meyer talks about how he, he always thinks that art is always a product of its time, uh, effectively, and, and this movie is no different. Actually, speaking to the darkness of that scene, another interesting filmmaking trick that I'm going to use to link to another scene I really like, and this is something I've always appreciated about Star Trek, is its, is its budgetary cost-saving measures. They pull a Citizen Kane trick using miniatures for some of the shots of the Klingon uh, courtroom, but also in, in how sort of a lot of the walls, a lot of the extreme parts of the shot fall to darkness. And if you can't see it, you don't have to build it. You don't have to put anything there. So it just looks like it's, it's an illusion of bigger space that is an incredibly cheap one. You know, it just costs the lights you already have there in the, in the studio. And they do this again, too, in that first scene after the Praxis explosion, when we find Spock has personally vouched for the Enterprise to go on this mission. And that set, too, is... Um, draped in darkness there's only a few sort of key lighting scenes and the more you look at it the more you can almost sort of tell that it's not that there's more room beyond it's that they've only built this much stuff on the soundstage but also that darkness really lends it this is a unique star trek movie in a lot of ways in the way that it looks and the way that it's designed and that first scene with kirk's incredulity to what has just happened there in the last two minutes of his life to Spock's just, again, as we've discussed, total cool-headedness and assuredness and moving forward with the Gorkin Peace Initiative. And the way that everything falls out so suddenly is, I, I always found, a very striking beginning after the, uh, after the, uh, the opening bang of Praxis in a very cool, dark room. I just want to talk about the assassination scene because, I mean, this is where the movie, this is the pivot point. We're talking about peace, and then all of a sudden we got photon torpedoes that have been fired and now all of a sudden it's now the game is really defile that piece. Yeah. Right. And now the game is really afoot. We got the main bridge crew of the enterprise wishing it could go to sleep because they're basically drunk. And instead we got photon torpedoes that are hurled toward Gorkon ship. You know, we got these masked Federation guys with their anti-grav boots clunking around the, the Klingon battle cruiser there, Klingon blood floating in the air, which I think, you know, for all of us, the first time you saw it, you'll, you'll never forget that. It just a well-paced sequence 
again, the score, Cliff Eidelman, I, I for sure could not name another movie that he scored. I'm not sure anybody oh, else could. I looked it up. There aren't many. Yeah. He's done a lot of stuff, but this was his biggest break, and he just never really... By far, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is right. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the score, you know, paces this scene extremely well. There's good drama. You know, it's, it's, it's well edited in terms of tight shots and, and, and the pacing of the scene to, to keep it interesting, to keep it engaging, to keep you sort of in the dark. Because this is, oh, yes, we're, we're on the heels of a Columbo podcast, and, and Gabe, you alluded to it, but there's, there's a genuine mystery that's going on here. Unlike Columbo, we don't know who these guys are. We don't know who the ultimate culprit is here. We don't think that the Enterprise fired torpedoes, but it takes us, you know, a half hour to figure out, oh, there's a cloaked Klingon bird of prey, and God, well, let's, let's really hope that that's, that's what happened. But, but that scene in particular, the juxtaposition of Kirk and his crew being sort of so out of it on the heels of this dinner and note to the galley, Romulan ale no longer to be served at diplomatic functions. And now all of a sudden, we better get our you-know-what together because we're on the verge of war here. I mean, it's such a great moment when, when Kirk and Bones you know, beam over and, and they materialize in the transporter pad and, you know, Brigadier Curla is there and, and Kirk, like, I give you my word, I, I don't know what has happened here. You know, we're here, we're here to try and help. We do whatever we can. And, and then ultimately, you know, Chang with the clapping of the hands, they're putting him in the shackles and, you know, Bones is, I, I, I tried to save him. You know, I, I did everything that I could. I tried to save him. Or no, it's Kirk. It's Kirk that says that, you know, we, we tried, we tried to save him. But it's just an emotionally charged scene, a cool scene, and then ultimately they've been arrested. And now we're like, oh boy, well now we're really in it. Two significant pivot points to this movie in all of the space of about, you know, 10 minutes maybe, um, because everything happens so fast and all at once uh, when, you're, when you start, when you talk about the opening of the scene, Dan. Spock has just, you know, called Kirk to the bridge to discuss something mundane. And next thing you know, are we firing torpedoes? I wish I knew. And there's a moment after like the first one hits and everybody's just sort of staring at the screen for a second. And then in like one snap moment, everybody breaks into action. Chekhov's calling down. Did we fire those torpedoes? They're trying to get to Scotty. They're trying. And then another one gets fired. And then we see yeah, the pacing of this and the anonymity of the assassins is um, like, we know it can't be Kirk and McCoy. That's great. They're clearly wearing Federation insignia, but like we can't trust anything that's happening at that point. We didn't know we were in a conspiracy movie until half an hour into it. And all of a sudden we're faced with one that is fully materialized. It's a tremendous moment. Um, and then, yeah, at the end, that, ex that extension all the way through, they've been arrested, is such a, a great spot when, yeah, Spock asserts control of the situation and pretty well runs the show up until the moment Kirk gets back and they have to sort of regroup to solve and save the day. I, I do love uh, in that scene Spock's evasion about the Viridian patch. Uh, we will be able to track the captain's movements. How have you accomplished this, sir? Time is of the essence, Lieutenant. Yeah, sorry, don't have the time to talk to you about that right now. You don't need to know. But the, and the assassination scene is also, I just have to say this too. Have we ever seen another Zero-G sequence in Star Trek? I don't think so. I mean, not only First is contact. it... Whole, well, okay, prior to this, I guess. Prior to... Oh, prior. There's Spock floating around in, in motion picture. Uh, 
he gets in that he gets in that suit. I, 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 you make a great point, Gabe, about how this scene starts, and it makes me think of something we talked about in our Jaws podcast. How they turn a joke into a moment of tension. You know, they're they're analyzing this radiation surge, which seems like more you know Star Trek mumbo jumbo, and Kirk only asks, the size of my head. Bingo. And that's when the torpedoes get fired. It's Chekhov makes this legitimately good joke. Kirk reacts to it like, oh boy, I know what you mean. And that's when the torpedoes go. And that's when we're all startled to attention. That like, as, as you've been saying, like, okay, now, you know, we've just hit the accelerator on this movie. Gabe, I really like what you said earlier about you know, kind of, we we were in this Cold War movie, but we didn't know it. And now all of a sudden, very, very quickly, we do know it. And just kind of the abruptness of that, I think, is is a really cool sort of construct that this movie used. And then, Dan, I also wanted to go back to something you were talking about with the music, because I think one of my favorite things about the music and the score in that assassination scene is actually the absence of it when the shots are actually fired at Gorka. Because you have this kind of, you know, the, the music's built up as as they're going through. You need to figure out who the sound design guy is with those zero gravity boots. Because that, that suction, that sounds just stuck in my head right now. But then you have all that build up. And if, I, if I'm correct, I probably shouldn't ask Gabe for the number of shots here. But I, I, I think there's at least one Klingon that's shot before Gorka. I think there might be. There are two. Because one, one guy gets well, it. One, there's several. Well, I, sorry, I mean specifically in the room. In the okay, room yeah. with him, there are two other people that get shot. Before. Is it two or one? I, I know the one guy loses his arm. And that's outside the room, but I think there's only one guy who gets yeah, it. There's one guy okay, in so the there's room. one guy in the room that gets it. The guy outside of the room loses his arm. And, 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 then, and then that's the point. So that he can testify at the trial. <laughs> they yeah. thought of everything. <laughs> but, but again, to go back to the music, that's where the music cuts. And you just no pun intended, but I think that then also sort of sets the gravity of this whole situation that we're all just like, whoa, we thought this was going to be a movie about peace between these two different species that have not gotten along for as long as we've known Star Trek. And now all of a sudden it is not that movie anymore. And Gabe, to your point, that all happened like that. I, I adore this movie. We all adore this movie. But this movie is not without, I'll say, flaws. If, Wait a minute. Yeah. So I, I got I to bring this up because Gabe mentioned the Viridian patch. And I got huge problems with the Viridian patch. So we see Spocko slap the Viridian patch on Jim's back before he departs for the Klingon ship. I'm willing to grant the premise that what looks like a three-inch device on Kirk's left shoulder, I'm willing to grant that that goes unnoticed while they're on the Klingon ship. But you mean to tell me that these guys, hierarchy in the Federation, are arrested by the Klingons, sent wherever they're sent to go on trial by the Klingons, and nobody saw this patch on the fella's back and thought, hmm, what the hell is this? Oh, it's a tracking device. Oh, we should probably get rid of that. Nah, you know what? Leave it on there because they're going to go to Rurapente. Nobody will ever find them. No problem. 
Because what happens is when they're on trial, you don't see the Viridian patch. See, I'd be willing to grant, okay, they beam on the Klingon ship. Kirk doesn't realize they get arrested. Somehow they end up like in a prison. Bones is like, hey, Jim, you got like a thing on, on your back there. And he like slips in his pocket. So like, okay, now, now we're good. That's why you don't see it at the trial. Except when they're on Repente later on in the movie, you do see it in the same spot on his shoulder. So again, I adore this movie, but that is a real loose bit of storytelling for me to believe that these arch enemies who were hell-bent on bringing this fella to justice missed a very overt piece of technology. You're absolutely right, Dan. And the, the reason that I know you're correct is that I have a very vivid memory of talking about the Viridian patch when I was in fifth grade. And we, we were, Jordan, you may appreciate this. It was some sort of writing exercise. And like in class, we were talking about problems you were having with this you know, story you were writing in fifth grade. And the, the problem was like that someone else said, I need this person to know that this other person is in this spot. And I, you know, Josh Freemuth, dork of the century, raise my hand and say like, well, you know, in Star Trek VI, there's this thing called the Viridian patch. And so you could just name it something different. And then it beams a signal to this other person. So a fifth grader was able to figure out that this is just a handy plot device. So, you know, it, it, you're definitely right, Dan, that the Viridian patch is awfully convenient. And that right there listeners is why josh had precisely three friends up through the end of high school and they're the three of us yeah yeah but he's also got 37 dorkfest championships on his resume so like a good wine i've got i've got three friends and seven dorkfest championships <laughs> Can we not bring up how many Dorkfest championships I have? Because I, I think it's one and it has an asterisk. Well, Dorks, you, uh, you've all demonstrated a degree of intrepidity in answering the two-point question. But the one who supplied... You, you cut Gabo off. Gabe, I didn't hear him. Oh, Gabe was like chomping at the bit to get in on this Viridian business. I just have a couple of things to say to you okay. and that is a i just pulled up youtube right now because i can absolutely see the viridian patch on kirk's back in the trial scene it may not be in every shot that's just a continuity error that's you know, <laughs> on the day of filming i'm looking at a shot right now though and it is clearly right there on kirk's shoulder secondarily as far as who's going to notice the viridian patch i have one question for you the first time you watched this movie did you see it because i didn't I did not, but I also wasn't, wasn't the guy's arch enemy putting him on trial for crimes against the Chancellor of the High Command. They don't know exactly what Starfleet uniforms are. Oh, he's got a captain. They have weird patches on their back sometimes, yes. Is it possible that they were distracted by Shatner's toupee and that's why they didn't see the Viridian patch? You know, anything is possible um, here in, because in, uh, I guess that they are wearing exactly the same uniform, didn't wash their clothes or change or anything the whole time going from Enterprise. I mean, they, they're in their dinner clothes, right? There's probably still a little bit of Romulan ale sweats in there. May I go now? Uh, yeah, you'd better, I think. You've all demonstrated a degree of intrepidity in answering the two-point question, but the one who supplied a feat of linguistic legerdemain 
was again Dan. Because of the Viridian patch, he gave me a chance to tell my fifth grade story and uh, bring up the trial, which is an outstanding scene. Dan, you've got a commanding lead. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. I truly don't even know what to say right now. I... You only prepared one quippy I remark. only had one, <laughs> one quippy retort, and I wasn't even sure I would get to deploy that. So I am truly aghast at the moment. I am just going to try and not let this slip away, although I guess we could be staring down at, oh, my, oh my Lord, is this going to end in a tie? <laughs> this can't end in a tie. Not because not with the torpedo business. The listeners would never believe that. Um, all right, dorks. Tachpa, tachbe. To be or not to be for three points. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Does it belong in the commissioner's collection? And why, Dan, go first. Absolutely, it does. Viridian patches aside, this movie just rocks. This movie kicks ass from the moment it begins until the moment it ends. Jordan talked about it right off the top. The overture, the opening credits, the music draws you right in. The first bit of action is a stinking moon exploding. This thing starts at a 10 and it stays there throughout, and it ends second star to the right and straight on till morning. The beautiful send-off of our original crew that was the genesis for all of us getting into this beloved franchise, and everything in between involves action, adventure, drama, humor. This movie has it all. And so as a movie just in and of itself, absolutely in the commissioner's collection. But I go even a step further because to me, the commissioner's collection on Dorkfest, the podcast, must have some kind of Dorkfest tie that binds. And Josh, you stated it right off the top. This was the movie that was chosen on the heels of the very first Dorkfest competition. And if all of us, at the end of all of that, came to this movie, that tells you how stinking good it is, that tells you how stinking good it continues to be, and it tells you how stinking good it will continue within the Commissioner's Collection. This was my nomination, as it were. I'm obviously going to say, yes, it absolutely belongs. I'm split as to whether it's the best Star Trek movie between six and two, but I'm comfortable in saying that it's the most enjoyable Star Trek movie. This is the Star Trek movie that is the best complete experience that doesn't leave you gutted at the end of it like two does. Dan, as you were running through all those points, drama, action, humor. This movie is funny. It's packed with action. It's arguably better dramatic story than Star Trek II, given all of the political backstory around it. This is an unbelievable movie. We as dorks love it, but I think it stands up outside of that. Absolutely, it belongs in the commissioner's collection. I'll follow that up and, and go a step further, Josh. I um, 
I, I at some point had to decide that this was my favorite Star Trek movie, bar none, over four, two, the excellence of a good segment of three. Star Trek Six, you guys are right, is the most complete. I think it's the perfect Star Trek movie. And it, to say nothing of the fact that I think it is also just a darn good movie in its own right. Even if this were brand new characters, you know, to some degree, we might be a little lost as to some stuff, but the screenplay is top notch. The, while there's a lot of classic Trek stuff in here, as we noted, I think the effects hold up even for several years later. There's a benefit to using models, let alone various other things they brought to bear, like, you know, the strategic lighting, the ways they make this movie. It's all very classically Star Trek. I mean, Kirk's cabin in this movie was also Spock's cabin in this movie with the pillar added, was also actively filming as Data's cabin in Star Trek The Next Generation, and it had been repurposed from Star Trek The Motion Picture. I mean, this is the pinnacle of what Star Trek had been doing for all of its movie-making career. And as we discussed, the characters are, are brilliant. They're at, you know, maybe the end of their game, but they've never been in finer or more confident form. They work so well together. Uh, even the villains seem like they're having a great time. Christopher Plummer is an absolute treasure. The, the whole, every Klingon, we haven't really mentioned Rosanna DeSoto as, as it bore, but as she, while she doesn't get a whole lot of time here, she, again, is somebody, everybody here is making the most of what they do. And there's some other Trek alums in this too. We have Odo himself playing the traitor Colonel West. There's so many fun things and connections that make this the most Star Trek-y thing ever, and it's just purely enjoyable. And thanks again to Cliff Eidelman for making it all fit together sonically. I mean, yeah, just to round out this discussion, I, I, I think it begins for me by, you know, kind of asking the question, if something is going to be included in the commissioner's collection, well, then what does that mean? What does it need to include? And Dan, you talked about this a little bit with, with sort of the dorky connection, and I think that's definitely part of it. But for me, it's also a, a defining aspect of something that belongs in the commissioner's collection is something that's not just about the trivia of it all and not just about the questions that we might ask but about the deep dives and about the films that are worthy of in-depth analysis and i think based on the fact that we've talked about this movie for going on two hours now it's definitely worthy of that deep dive and dan i, I would hasten to say that there's probably still some meat on, on the bone that we didn't quite chew off but in all seriousness, you know, kind of just talking about the the analysis and just kind of the depth of this movie. You know, we talked about the character arcs and we talked about the development of the characters and the relationship between the characters. We talked about the nuance of the different mindsets that were presented with. And then, Gabe, I know you and I were talking earlier about how, you know, so much of what makes Star Trek memorable and and something that resonates throughout time is that it's a product of its time and in that it's partly historical in nature and this film is definitely that i think when you see praxis blow up at the beginning of this film you can't help but think about the chernobyl disaster that occurred you know just five years before this movie came out and you can't help but potentially think that there's a connection here and that and that the film is asking sort of that question of what do you do in a situation when an quote-unquote enemy is facing a, a a disaster is facing a humanitarian disaster what calculations then do you have to go through in a situation like that so in terms of this specific movie not only does it rock not only is it just fun not only is it action-packed not only is it fun but it's also a in-depth, personal, really, really just deep film that is, is worthy of plenty of deep dives 
perhaps in another podcast sometime later on. Well, there you have it, citizens. It's unanimous. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, enshrined in the Commissioner's Collection of Dorkfest, the podcast, the pantheon of our favorite dorky movies, the, the ones that we come back to time and again, some of the absolute seminal texts of our dorkiness. The Commissioner's Collection kicked off with Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Now, some people think the three-point question means the end of the podcast. Well, we haven't run out of podcast quite yet. The winner of the three points, end of the podcast, is Dan. It's back-to-back victories for Dan. He was put in a tough position getting the last choice of the warm-up question, and he came up with the, with the sign-off tidbit, which has always been one of my favorite parts of this movie. He did great work with Jim Kirk in the characters and the trial in the scenes. And he perfectly laid out exactly why we as dorks love this movie so much and why it belongs in the commissioner's collection. Congratulations, Dan, winner of this episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. I am honored beyond my accomplishments. That's a Columbo reference, not appropriate for this particular yeah, you're, podcast. You're, you're not Dorkfest, the podcast man of the year. This is, <laughs> right. this is just this one. This, this does actually, I really appreciate this. This means a lot more than our listening audience could ever possibly know for me. It does give me the opportunity, though, to right the wrong that I forgot to mention earlier because I forgot what I think is one of the truly great moments in this movie, and that is when Martia turns into Jim Kirk and we get the tremendous line of, I can't believe I kissed you. I bet it was your lifelong ambition, which you watch and you think, yeah, probably for Bill Shatner. Yeah, I could see that. Sure. Kissing yourself. Yeah, I I, I bet that. So I'm glad I, I was able to bring that up. Mostly though, love this movie. Love being able to talk about it with you guys. And hopefully our listening audience out there was able to, you know, connect with the fandom that we have with this movie, because I think that's really what the commissioner's collection is all about. It's that fandom. It's those movies that no matter how many times you've seen them, you always enjoy going back to them. I think that's going to be a real calling card for the commissioner's collection. And our listening audience out there, I'm sure even if Star Trek VI is not in your commissioner's collection, you've got similar movies, and hopefully you enjoy going back to those as often as we enjoy going back to Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Dan, your face right now reminds me of another line in that scene. I like it here. You're <laughs> really, really tickled on top of the world with two Dorkfest W's in a row. Well, not only two Dorkfest dubs in a row, but a clean sweep. I'm, I'm, this is the likes of which we've never seen on Dorkfest the podcast. Please take center stage for your awkward round of applause. And uh, Jordan and Gabe, you just stand off to the side in silver and bronze position like Scotty and Sulu. That so okay so all right I know we're trying to wrap things up here but does that scene look awkward to anybody else? 
I think it was. I know their, what we're going for. Yeah, I but... think it's their crack at the at the New Hope medal ceremony, <laughs> uh, but it, it did not land. Yeah, it doesn't work quite so good. Because I am apparently unwilling to admit to any imperfection in this film, even in the face of completely reasonable and relatively minor criticisms about the radiant patches. Yeah, that doesn't completely work for me. Even at the end of the film, there just let's let's take a, a step up, just like this. Uh, one leg up on the on the stair. <laughs> now, will that be one step or two steps down from Kurt? Two step, one step. Okay. Hey, and which version did people watch? Did you guys watch watch the one where they reveal the sniper or no? No, yeah, not, yeah. yeah me neither. Oh wait, I'm sorry. The the when they do it in the mind meld scene or when they or they literally do or do not reveal. It's well, it's both. There there are there are versions that have like during the mind melt scene where they flash like right, right Ambassador Nonclus and it like flares to that guy as if we forgot who he was because we're, you know, eminently stupid or something. I think it's, it's the theatrical version that, that I watched and that one also cuts out the Colonel West reveal. Yeah, ditto. At, at the end. Yeah. And it also, it also omits Scotty with some questionable language, certainly not fit for our podcast. Well, Dorks, once again, we've saved civilization as we know it. Thanks so much for joining us for the inaugural Commissioner's Collection episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. We look forward to bringing you other fantastic films in this collection in the future. Until then, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you target your podcasts. We also encourage you to check out Dorkfest underscore podcast on Instagram. We received orders to put back to Space Dock immediately and decommission this podcast. Thanks again for joining us. We must do this again sometime on Dorkfest, the podcast. What is it with you anyway? Still think we're finished? More than ever. <laughs>